Hey guys, thanks for checking out another episode of Purpose Over Paycheck. I can't wait for you guys to hear Sam and Jessica's story. They have been working in Haiti caring for orphan children over the last seven years with the organization In His Hands Orphans Outreach. In this episode, we discuss what led them to Haiti, what it's like caring for orphan children, and how their work has influenced their life. I think you will all be inspired by their selflessness. Here's my conversation with Sam and Jessica Jakaitis. Dude, it's good to see you guys. It's been so long. Yeah, man. I'm just happy that we I got to do it at this time and that this whole thing worked out for us to be able to do it with you. When I was thinking about having you, you know, wanting to have you guys on the podcast, I was thinking like, oh, with internet and stuff, it's probably so sketch and in and out there. So it kind of worked out I think, <laughs> yeah. for both of us. Yeah, there's been weeks that have gone by with no internet in Haiti. So, oh, I believe that. So, Jess, you came back to the U.S. before Sam. Was that right? I came back for a week to go see doctors. And then I flew back to Haiti and then Corona came into Haiti and we had to make a decision about what we thought was best for our family. So we ended up back here together. How do you navigate being pregnant in Haiti? Because this is your third kiddo, right? Yes. So normally what we have done in the past is we stay in Haiti. We ha- There's a clinic ran by Americans, not just 10 minutes from our house. So they do my monthly checkups and then... About a month and a half, two months before the baby's due, I head back to the States with kids and Sam stayed another month or couple weeks and he comes back and meets us before the due date. Mm -hmm. And then we have the baby stateside and then we have to wait for, you know, birth certificates, passports and all that. And then we head back to Haiti. But this time has been just really different because of the coronavirus. Yeah. How has it affected Haiti? Have you guys been able to like keep up with people there and it's kind of uh at first the initial shock of the whole thing caused like mass chaos where people were in masks and everywhere the whole day but they wasted like all the ones they had in one day so then like on the next couple days you wouldn't see them anymore i'll share something kind of quick when i was going to get the exit letters from the child services for our two oldest girls when i walked in it was the first work day after they had announced that coronavirus had Haiti or or Haiti had coronavirus sorry and uh, I walked in there and they ran from me literally they they ran from me and were like in in uh, Creole they were saying help and like ran inside the door because in their mind Americans and foreigners brought the coronavirus so they probably have it I waited and I had to come back and I eventually ran into the lady and everything was better the second time around But what was kind of funny is, and this kind of sums up how some of the stuff works there. When I walked out, they said, hey, you need to to wash your hands. And they had this little five-gallon bucket. And I was like, okay, is there soap? No. Is there Clorox in the water? No. So I'm just going to stick to my hand sanitizer. And the guy was like, okay. And then he went and dumped the bucket out and got rid of it. But, But... some people were trying to make some efforts, but other people weren't. But then there was also people who believed that the government was in on it and that they were just trying to get foreign aid and that they didn't actually, because uh, they announced that they were going to give it to some foreign countries mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden Haiti had it. So there's a lot of people who kind of believe things, don't believe things. Um, it has shut some stuff down the markets. The government tried to implement like uh, social distancing and things being closed, stay at home, but 
the people of Haiti didn't necessarily follow that. And that's partially because they don't have refrigerators at home to stock up on food. Or they, money to stock two weeks. Yeah, they have to go to the market the day they're going to cook. Like, that's just how their lives work. And your choice becomes take a chance and die of corona or die of starvation if mm -hmm. you don't have it. I mean, you have some people just have to go to work. They don't have that opportunity like we do where we can be off of work and take a month off or, you know, get uh, unemployment and stuff like that. So it's it's a very different situation than in the United States. You know, like you said, I think people here, it's so easy for us to be like, oh, yeah, we'll just take, you know, weeks or months off of work and we'll be OK. But like you said, for them, you know, it's like yeah. the difference between starving or not. So let's start back from the very beginning and Sam we went to Haiti together and I, I remember running into you the night before you were just so nonchalant about going and it ended up being like this huge <laughs> transformation for you and profound experience do you want to kind of hash out like yeah. what the experience was like for you that first time yeah for sure so when I was uh what was that 19 so that was 2011 I believe August of 2011 but it's a little bit before that I feel like it was spring break uh, about when my mom came up to me and asked, she wanted to go to Haiti, but my dad wouldn't let her without one of the boys going and I, my brothers or me. And so my older brother was gone. He's in the military and uh, he wouldn't be able to get off. And my younger brother, he uh, had baseball in the summer and he was still in high school. So it was a little bit different than me who was in college. And so my mom asked me if I would go. And I told her that I really didn't want to. And I, re I had no good reason whatsoever. I think I was just a dumb college student and was just kind of only thinking about myself and hanging out with my friends and going to parties and doing stuff like that. So I was not thinking about, you know, the effect that would have. And I told her that I wasn't going to go. We were sitting on my uh, old porch at my house and I got up to walk inside and my mom started crying and being the somewhat of a mama's boy that I am, <laughs> I felt really bad. And to this day, this, I tell my teams when they come down, I said this phrase, I said, fine, I'll go, but I'm not going to any of those stupid team meetings <laughs> or maybe dumb insert something negative right. towards the team meetings, which now I'm like, please, go to the team meetings <laughs> because so, you know, you get some people come down and they clearly haven't, you know, read this, uh, you know, read our packet. packet and different stuff sometimes. So we really encourage people to do that so that they have an idea before they come down and the expectations. So it was the first meeting. I don't remember exactly how I found out, but I found out that you were going and that made it a lot easier for me because I was like, Oh, I know Brett. I've known him since we rode the bus in kindergarten. And so I'm like, that's fine. Uh, that'll be fun. And I remember the first day we were there, everyone was under the assumption basically that the main reason I was there is just because I want to be there for my mom, kind of protect her, just make sure nothing happened. It, it's kind of funny now looking back. I remember the, uh, I didn't really want to be there in the first day. And I remember after day two thinking like, I love this place <laughs> and just everything about it. And I had met Winnie and Rudnow, who are now, uh, we are almost finished with the adoption process for the two of them. So it's been a long time, but we are nearing the end. And so knowing to like that, I met them that first day at VBS is just crazy to think about now. I just think that getting me out of the environment that I was in 
was just so life-changing. Right. And I feel like I'm in a unique position because I could remember very vividly when we were visiting one of the houses and you had walked away from our group and took a second to yourself. And I remember thinking, you know, like, where is he going? And to later come to find out that you had this like deeply profound moment. Can you kind of share a little bit what was going through your head at that moment? Yeah. So we were visiting Pastor Benito's house. And for those of you who don't know, Pastor Benito and Sam actually work together. Yeah. So I just remember talking to him about uh, some of the kids. I was asking them, are they going to be at church? Because the VBS was done. But I remember asking, okay, some of these kids are going to be at church. And I kind of gave them the list of names of the kids or whatever. Some of the kids will be there, but some of them won't be. If the parents don't have food for the kids, then they send them off into the streets to find food. Yeah. That's a pretty hard thing to hear. I mean, and he wasn't like, I mean, I remember just kind of sitting there and like, is he joking? Like, to me, that was such a bizarre concept. Even after being there, like, it just hadn't hit me that that was a possibility. I remember the thing I thought of most was the two girls, Winnie and Rudnall, that I had met. And just... I'm not going to let that happen, which is the ultimate American thing to do. To think that you can just be like, I'm, I'm not going to let that happen. You know what I mean? Not on my watch. I want to solve, fix the whole pro- problem of Haiti that people have been trying to forever. But I think that was a good thing that I had that mindset because I think that once I got the realization, I mean, I was back in the States and trying to find ways to get to Haiti and drop out of college. I mean, that's where we were at. You know what I mean? So I'm happy things worked out the way they did, but that was kind of the moment that I realized like I'm moving to Haiti because I'm not going to let that happen to any of these kids. And it's hard because you can't save everyone there and help every single person, but we do have the opportunity to help somebody almost every day in some way shape or form that's not always through money that's not always through food um it's through all kinds of ways and so um yeah no man that's good jessica i know you've done a lot of traveling too uh before you met sam can you tell us a little bit about your world prior to sam so i was it wasn't as cool I was pretty involved at church growing in high school. I went on a mission trip every summer with the church. My first one actually was in Dominican Republic, the other side of the island, but um, I've done trips in the States, out of the States. Didn't do as many in college, but still traveled quite a bit. And then my final year of college, also in 2011, it's kind of a unique piece of our story, but um, in 2011, I went on a missions internship to Africa for two months. And so that was the longest and probably most impactful one that I had gone on. Did you have a moment like Sam, where you knew that you wanted to be working overseas? Or was it kind of more of this when you met Sam, it just made sense? I don't think I had one moment. I think I had a lot of moments put together as a when I was younger. And when the missionaries would come speak at the church, I always thought that is just the most incredible thing that you can do. And I just admired it so much. And then I always loved to serve. I liked working with kids. When we went to Africa, I came back. I had one semester left of college and I was an education major. So I was going to be a teacher. And I just kind of felt like I was saying, you might teach, but I also 
might put you on the mission field. Like I just really felt like there was just not this concrete what my future was going to hold, but I definitely thought missions was a part of it. I had no idea when, where, what, or anything like that. I did not ever feel called to one specific place or a time or anything like that. Yeah. So then how did you guys end up meeting then? Okay. So (laughs) I'll give you a little bit because Jessica will try to make it sound all sappy probably, but, um, (laughs) So she actually was on that trip in Africa with my sister. Who I didn't know before the trip. I met her on the trip and we clicked and became very good friends on the trip. And uh, during that time, I guess my sister had shared some stuff with her uh, just about me, but not in any way to be like, hey, you should be with my... It was more like... She basically was, that whole summer, she was talking about, you know, she shared, I have three brothers, but... I have one brother who's going to Haiti and I want this trip to make an impact on his life. So that summer, you know, her biggest prayer request for a whole group was, you know, for her brother that was going to Haiti and that it would kind of make an impact on his life. And I shared in those prayers, not even knowing who Sam was at that time. Well, my sister sent me a message uh, and it just said, Hey, uh, I knew this girl and she wants to be a missionary, but she doesn't know where. Sent me a picture, and I was just like, yes. That's the best way to say it. Yes. She's not telling me any of this that she's doing. And she lived 15 hours away, and I just remember I saw her, and it's the only, like, I know that's super sappy and whatever, but, like, when you say, like, love at first sight, no, I saw her, and I knew I was going to marry her. And before I didn't talk to her or anything like that. And so it was kind of funny when I was in uh, college because like a month later, I still hadn't talked to her a month later or anything like that. She didn't even know who I was. I didn't really know who she was, but I just knew what my sister had told me about her. And so I finally told my friends that I was close with that were not at all people you would necessarily expect to be like, oh yeah, that's awesome. I was like, hey, I think I'm about to, I think I'm going to move to Haiti like at some point. I'm like, what? This was so out of left field for them. And uh, they said that, they were like, well, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to get married? What are you going to do? Like, can you marry someone there? What's going to happen? I said, well, I think I'm probably going to get married to that girl. Like, what girl? I'm like, that girl I showed you that picture of. Like, you haven't even talked to her. And they laughed and laughed and laughed at me and joked with me, and they were both in my wedding. So uh, that's a good part. But we ended up, what ended up happening was, uh, on Valentine's Day, I sent her flowers at her school. Uh, she did not know who I was. She knew I, I, was, knew, I, I she knew my name like, through my sister. But I sent her flowers at her school and asked her if she would want to do a Skype date that night. And and uh, so she agreed. And then she fell deeply in love with me. <laughs> wow. So that That's... Guess that was all. No, uh, but then I mean, like she visited and we visited. We worked together at a camp in Georgia, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stuff, and then we were married uh, uh, about a year and four months after we first I sent you the flowers. Yeah, mm-hmm. the June of the next year. So it was not. It was pretty quick. That's awesome. Jess, did it scare you to like think about moving to Haiti? Because I mean, it was it was all you know Sam talked about. So it's obviously one thing to go visit somewhere, but totally different to move your entire life somewhere. How did that affect you when he shared that? Well, I knew 
because of my friendship with Becca, I knew how much he cared about Haiti. So whenever we did start dating, I knew that that was in the books. Like I knew it was going to be a part of it. And I was very open to it. I think doing my missions internship in Kenya really just prepared my heart for that. Now, I didn't know that we'd move so soon and so fast. That part of it kind of scared me. I had just moved. We just got married. We had, I had only been in Illinois for a year. I really liked my job. And I even said to him, like, mm, maybe we need to wait a little longer. But um, no, I don't think it really scared me. Um, I always kind of knew it was a part of it. And I think that's one of the reasons God didn't write a place in my heart because it was in his and he was going to put us together. Sam, can you share maybe about the events that led up to you and Jess actually moving to Haiti? I kept going back to visit Benito, but not with teams. I just kept started going by myself pretty much every six months whenever I had a uh, break from school. And then Jessica even went with me and my sister one time. We did, uh, we did that and we knew like this is what we wanted to do. And then we got married and uh, we were living. I was a senior at McKendree and she was teaching at a Christian school in St. Louis. And everyone kind of knew that we were interested in this. Benito had told me that there was someone in Rochester named Michelle who was like interested in doing an orphanage or, uh, you know, doing work in Haiti. Benito had a dream to build an orphanage. Michelle was running in his hands orphans outreach at the time so they connected them to and then also word got around that we wanted to move to Haiti so Michelle had gotten contact with us for us to meet about it as well it was funny because we went to Michelle's house not really knowing 100% what was going on about five minutes into it it wasn't really like do you guys want to move to Haiti? It was kind of like, when are you moving to Haiti? And so we kind of joke about it. and Like, when are you guys going to go? And we, I just remember we both walked out and we were happy because we wanted to. So there was no like, and maybe that was just the vibe they got from us is like, they want to go. Like they're, it's not a matter of, do we ask them? It's that they are going. I just remember we walked out to the car and we were sitting there and it's like, I think we just committed to move to Haiti. <laughs> We've and, only been married for a couple months. <laughs> yeah, we, it, was, it was probably, what, six months or something? I don't even think six months. Yeah, I don't remember. I just remember we were just like, I think we're moving to Haiti. Yeah. We just committed to doing this. And so... Well, it was really comforting to us to work with Pastor Benito, a relationship yeah. that oh, Sam yeah. had had for so long. And even I, I had been there twice by this point. And so it was in the community that we had been to so many times with the pastor that we knew so well and trusted. And so it seemed like it fit. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. How long have you guys been there now? We are almost at six years of living there. That That's about crazy to think about. There, right? September 1st, 2014. Wow. What was that transition like when you first got there? Well, we moved in. I'll let you share your part. I'll share my part and you share yours. <laughs> we moved in. And at the time when we got there, our house didn't even have a roof on it. So we had to stay with another missionary for two weeks. And all we said was we want a roof on it. And uh, like, that was it. And so in like rebar on the windows or whatever, just so it's safe. We had our dogs with us and we just moved in the second it was available. There were bugs everywhere. The, there was no screens on the windows. There was no flat ceiling. It was just like sheet metal up to the top, but there were lots of gaps for like air. Well, and the construction was not done on our no, house. No, we... <laughs> One third of it was done. I just remember we were laying there the first night. There was no security or anything, which now when I think about it, it's kind of like, and hey, we were just there in this house. And 
it starts raining and it was so loud because it was just hitting the sheet metal. The dogs are freaking out. There's nothing on the window. So water's pouring in our room and we're just sitting there like, what are we doing here? And so we grab the shower curtains and start stapling them to the walls to keep the water from coming in our house. And Jessica and I were just, I just remember we finally, when we laid down, the dogs are on our bed because they're freaking out because it's so loud. And I just remember I was sitting there and I'm like, what did we just get into? Like, <laughs> what were we thinking? Because we were awake at 7 a.m. They would be there mixing concrete in our living room, I guess, or our living space. Get done for another two months. So we didn't have power in the house for another three months. Yeah. We had a generator that we ran from six to eight every night. So we had two hours to charge everything. And uh, we had to really take it. We had all these like chargeable little tiny batteries but we didn't have batteries for the house so like we didn't have refrigerator or electricity or anything so I think that because we were so young at that time you know Sam was 22 23 23 I, just I was 25 I think <clears throat> that helped in the fact that that felt more like an adventure than really like oh, I think yeah. if we had had kids or things like that we would have been much more overwhelmed but we always joke now as crazy as those stories are like those are some of our favorite Those memories. Those are our favorite memories when I think about moving there. Just the crazy stuff that happened while we were trying to build. Because we didn't have vehicles. We didn't have anything. So we were riding around on motos with five of us yeah. or trying to put, uh, you know, 16-foot, you know, two-by-fours on the sides of our moto to get them over to play. It was just... It was crazy where there were tarantulas all in our house. Mm -hmm. There was one day we found seven in one day. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was at the time when we first, the first three months were the roughest, but they were also uh, the coolest. And I also feel like I gained a like crazy respect for Jessica just for even being willing <laughs> to do this. And I'm like, okay, if she, and I, we always kind of go back to that. We're like, okay, whatever we go through, even if the generator breaks at our house, the batteries go out. We always think back, like we did it before we did it for three months. So it's, it's hard to get us down in Haiti, you know, now because of what we've actually started with. On day two of us moving in, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old were dropped off at our house to live forever. That was when he <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't at the time. It wasn't. We didn't know that, but yeah. we were, they were dropped off unexpectedly. So we also, in this whole process of going into this house, became became parents, parents to two kids. So that was a. Uh, when I think about the craziest parts of it, the fact that we didn't mention that part, and they didn't speak a word of English, we didn't speak Creole, yeah. so there was a lot of craziness with that. For sure, for sure. Can you guys kind of flesh out for everyone all the different things that you do in Haiti? When we first moved there, like Sam said, it was they were still just building our house. So what came after our house was the first orphan home and then the shower house but so we were there for a good little bit of time before we had teams or even kids in the orphanage i don't think we got our first like we had a couple guys visit a couple months in but then we didn't get our first team until probably six months later yeah so at first it was just managing sam was managing all this construction that was going on and just making overseeing making sure that got done i guess about a year after we had been there we got our first kid um, but the shower house <laughs> was not done yet, so she had to live in our house with us first. And so we kind of rushed, kind of really pushed that project. Our first little girl, she was six 
live at the time. And then after that, um, slowly we started to get a couple more kids. And so then we went into the hiring house moms and creating schedules and enrolling in school and all the things that come along with running an orphanage at that point. You know, we went a whole year before that really started. And then it was just like, we really were thrown into that part of it. Um, the IBSR, which is social services in Haiti, has placed 24 kids with us in the matter of two months. And so we went from 24 kids to 42. And it was just insane how fast it happened because I because of those placements from IBSR. Yeah, so I was kind of managing employees while also, uh, you know, dealing with construction uh, of the buildings that we were doing, just kind of managing those guys. They, they knew what they were doing and how to build the houses the way they, had, they do them in Haiti. But uh, I was there kind of like, you know, payroll, make sure people were working, you know, going through all of that. And so that was a different experience for me, but I really enjoyed doing that. Day-to-day stuff with the kids, you know, making sure they have what they need. We were running, we were going to the markets, we were doing all kinds of stuff with them. And Pastor Benito is working with us. Yes, during, all this during this well. whole time, Benito, we did not receive any children ourselves. Benito was always the one who had uh, the final say. We would send them to him. Uh, if somebody asked us or anything, we would send them to him to kind of like check into it, make sure, you know. We wanted to have rules and processes because we did not want just to have kids being brought to us because, oh, there's white people over there and they're going to take uh, care of the kids and pay for their school. and Because that is kind of the mentality there sometimes. And so we did not want to just be, you know, have 100 kids in this orphanage that didn't need to be in an orphanage, you know. Uh, I have probably, uh, I, whenever anybody would come to the gate, I would be the one who would receive them. I would say that in my six years, I've had to say no probably close to a hundred times. So no to receiving. And it's usually because it's a parent or a... Our uh, goal is always to keep children with their parents. So if they come with a, you know, parents come with their children, we ask a certain, you know, Sam and Benito ask certain questions and they just kind of, communicate together about what is best in that situation. And we believe that that they need to be with their parents as much as they can be. So or extended family. Right. So our goal is always to try to make sure that what we do first is keep them with their family if we can. But our number one priority is their safety. Right. If we think that there is a, uh, abuse um, from all kinds, I mean, any way, physical, sexual, you know, anything like that, then that obviously makes it a little different circumstance along with, uh, you know, health of uh, feeding, which that we've only done that a few times where we felt like the kids were so malnourished that we took them in temporarily to help get them back Mm -hmm. up to it. And then they actually went back to their biological father so that was one of them but uh it's very hard because of the records in haiti to know when people are lying or if they're not lying you know somebody will bring you a kid and say that it's you know oh i'm just the cousin or something like that but they're actually the mom so it takes some extensive like you know research in regards to going into those communities and trying to find where they're from and seeing if there's uh 
what the truth, uh, is. What the truth is because we don't want to be one of those organizations that's just bringing in kids you know just to fill a quota or something mm-hmm. like that so right. uh, we want to help the helpless i guess you could say the ones that really can, there's no opportunity for any other option and uh, do our best to take care of the kids yeah that's good that's our number one job i would say there is our number one job is just being there for the kids and working with them. Everything else comes second to that. Right, right. And you guys have a different philosophy from a lot of organizations working with orphan children in that you guys use more quote-unquote orphan homes versus orphanages. Can you kind of flush that out and what that means? It's kind of hard to tell the difference between all of it. Our goal uh, originally when we first uh, started the whole thing with like the organization, when I say we, I said the organization was to uh, have it with a mom and dad who lived in the house with the kids. But that just wasn't a possibility with the way things work in Haiti. If somebody is living on your compound or living at your house, then you are responsible for taking care of all of their needs and everything. And it's just a bad situation that people have been burnt on before in Haiti. But no, we try to do things uh, a little bit differently where they're separated out, where there's sets with a house mom in each room with about, you know, anywhere from six to 12 kids in there. And we want them, we try to, you know, keep them in those groups as much as we can when they can. So they kind of have that opportunity to kind of have a family atmosphere. You know, you can't get away when you, when you say the difference between orphanage and orphan home at the end of the day, it's, there's a lot of different concepts of orphanage. So having them all in one room, I mean, there, I've seen horrible ones. I've seen good ones. It's, it's a big difference in Haiti, but we try to have male influences as well. That I think is important. I think sometimes when they only have female workers, I think that's kind of hard on not only the female workers in Haiti, but also uh, the kids. They need to have those positive role models, the boys. And so that's important to us. I do think that it is more of a family atmosphere than some places. Uh, My wife and I both have walked around for years, gave each kid a kiss on the head. Told them we love them. Told them good night. Now, I mean, there's been days that we've missed, I'm sure, but uh, we we try our best to do that almost every single night. That's important to me. It was a little harder when Jessica when we had the babies and stuff in the house, but for me, I've always I've always tried to be out there and make sure because I want every kid there to know that they're loved and they're cared about. And I think another advantage to the smaller homes is it gives the kids a sense of this is my my house or my room whereas if you're in one big room you know you can't you probably always have to share all of your stuff you probably you know it doesn't give you the same sense of this is my room this is where my stuff is put things like that. I think that helps them feel like a sense of ownership. And that's something that they really want. Mm -hmm. Um, When, when teams come and they make something with the kids, the kids love that they have something that is theirs. Like it's, that's so important to them. I think because they're, they're missing and, you know, 
And they maybe never have had something that was theirs. Right. So like each kid has a box that has their name painted on it. And this is where your stuff is. And then a team came in above each bed and painted a square that has their name on it. And they can hang up their pictures or things that (laughs) they Some kids have even drawn on it and we just just, let it go because we're like, it's their space. Yeah. We want them to feel like they have something that is theirs. Yeah. Yeah. So leading up to the podcast with you guys, I was reading that there's roughly 1 million children orphaned in Haiti. Why do you guys think that number is so high? I think that there might be a million kids in orphanages, would you say? That might be the case, but that does not necessarily mean that they were orphaned because there are a lot. There's actually some studies that have done that only 30% of kids in orphanages in Haiti uh, actually have both of their parents deceased. And that 70%, a lot of them are poverty orphans. And there's a lot of mixed reactions. And I'll be honest with you, Jess and I have come back and forth. There are times where I would think that, man, you know, the American part of us, I guess it is, that, you know, want to fix everything. It's like, well, these kids would be better if they're just an orphan. But sometimes it's not, you know, just because we wouldn't think that that situation would be a good thing or a fun, like that they'd be happy. Kids are happy. You know, there's kids that are happy in Haiti and they have nothing. And so you got to get away from that mindset. That stuff is more important, that stuff than, is more important than family and really see that family aspect before. And it's a hard thing for everyone to understand and learn. And it takes time. And there's times that I'm, there's been times where kids have come to the gate where I just am like, man, I, I just, I hurt, I hurt for these people, but I also don't want to be a part of the problem where people will just start bringing us kids because it's an easy way out. And like I said, I've said no hundred times or more, and it's it's tough. And I think that's a big part of the reason there have been pastors or people who claim to be pastors who go to families and tell them, hey, let me take your kids and I'll put them in an orphanage and I have these American people, they're going to pay for it. And they're going to take, they're going to pay for their schooling. And I genuinely believe that some of these parents might think that like that they care about some of the kids, but they still send them. But there also is a very deceiving thing that there's, that's a big, this is a big uh, discussion in Haiti right now between missionaries a lot. Some people are anti-orphanage, some people are for orphanage. And so there's a big different movement between that. But in my opinion, and I can share, I have never had that happen where we have received a child where, you know, sometimes they portray it like there's like this mom or dad crying at the gate as they like drop off a kid. That has never happened with us. So if somebody comes and talks to me, I will say, uh, I'll ask him my, one of my first questions is where are the mom and dad? And if they are not dead, then I'll ask some questions about it. But typically what I'll do is pass it to Benito because unless there's some like outlying circumstance about that, then we usually won't receive them if they don't have that because we don't want to be part of that problem that leads to a million kids being orphaned. You know what I mean? And uh, in like any third world country, you have corruption. Um, sometimes they're pastors. Sometimes they're just people who's Haitians who speak English you know, they convince Americans to work with them. Let's start this orphanage. It's a need. And then they 
convince families to give their children up to put kids in this orphanage so that money can be raised and sent, be sent down for it. But then those people, those either pastors or Haitian leaders are take like we have, how many kids do we have for this reason alone? Well, the 12? We yeah. have 12 kids in our care that were in another orphanage that became so broken because people were being convinced to put their kids there and the the person the Haitian manager was taking majority of the money not feeding the kids not paying his workers and so you have that's why there's this huge divide right now in just the pros and cons of orphanages or orphan homes because of corruption like that and so i think like sam said that number one million it might be that there are one million kids in an orphanage but are they true mm, orphans yeah that makes sense and sam if i remember right you studied business in college and you're actually using that in haiti tell us a little bit about the micro loan program you started yeah so i went to school for business management and so we will receive people that will come and we would talk with them if we felt like their idea would uh you know be beneficial for them then we would give them a loan now when i say we would have people come we wouldn't invite them they would show up for some other outlying reason whether it was to drop off a kid like they wanted to put the kid in the orphanage or they wanted they needed money for something and instead of just giving them money or taking the kid we would go to a you know a micro and hey what can we do to help you you know, advance yourself to where you don't need to give up your kid or to where you don't need to come to me for food or money or something like that. And so we would try to come up with something like that. And then we would try to make very minimal payments, like where they can just pay, you know, monthly $5 or something uh, on a $200 loan. I mean, but that can start in the business that they need. A hard thing for some Americans is they come in and get very frustrated. And we saw that with a business club that came down. They were putting on a seminar for people in the community, and then they were going to give out some loans. Uh, it was almost like kind of like a Shark Tank type of situation, but it was one of those things where I was like, you all need to understand that you saying supply and demand does not immediately click in their head like a business. You got to explain it from the very bottom. And so we did that, and it took time, but uh, teaching is hard. But most of the time, the businesses are stopped due to well, my kid had to go to the hospital and the hospitals are expensive and, you know, different stuff like that, where then they spend all their profits and they don't have money to buy the product again. And so I think a big thing is just like money management. But I think the microloan program has proven to be more successful, the more that it's invested. You know, a $200 business, it might be successful for a little bit, but uh, over time, if any type of thing like emergency or paying for a kid's school comes up, you might not have the money to do it. Whereas if there's a 500 or $700 thousand dollar business, you're going to have a lot better chance of that being successful in the long term. Yeah, that makes sense. So what have you guys learned from working in such an impoverished place with, you know, some of the most vulnerable children? Things aren't necessarily stuff doesn't, you know, outweigh, you know, doesn't make happiness. You know, for us, I think about like, you know, what we do you know, is not, we're not making millions of dollars, you know, doing what we do. But, you know, 
I get to see my kids every day. I get to have an impact with uh, the kids in Haiti every day. We get to spend time with them and have an impact on their life. And hopefully they will grow up and have an impact on their kids and other people's lives. And so learning, I think, to adapt to another culture was hard, but also just being able to listen. You know, as you know of me, I like to talk a lot. So listening is, you know, sometimes hard. So that was one thing I think I learned there is to really try to listen to the people and even if I don't agree with Benito or Masaru on something, but to really listen to them and try to understand, because maybe I'm wrong and maybe that's, you know, they're right in their cult. We're in their culture. So we have to at least be willing to listen and find out from them what the best way to approach some things are. What do you think? I think for me, one of the greatest challenges over the years is that we can't and don't have the ability to help every single person that we see needs help or comes to us for help. And that's hard. Even within the kids that we have, they have trauma and hurt that we cannot heal for them. We can try to help as much as we can, but ultimately all of those things lie in God's hand. And just as I know for me, I like to be, you know, I like to have control. I like to know what's coming next. I'm a planner. I like organization, things like that. And so in this particular job, you that's all out the window. You have no idea what the de- next day, the next hour, anything like that will bring. So just the, you're really truly having to hold your hands open to God and say, I see this need, but I I can't do it. Can you? Um, I see this hurt in this child. I can't heal it, but can you? We need this done here in our community. We need this happening, but how do we do that? Just constantly having to remember, like, God is our ultimate Savior, you know, and we can be there and we can help as much as we can, but we're always continuing to remember, like, ultimately, He is their Father and He is their healer. And he is their provider when we can't help. I have a quick story, but it kind of like goes into that. I think that was probably one of the biggest learning experiences for me. And that was with the 12 kids she spoke about that were from a a bad orphanage. Uh, An American lady approached me and told me that that there were these kids that were in this really horrible situation. So I went there with her to visit and uh, there was uh, these 12 kids and six uh, handicapped kids and she was eventually able to get them to go out but the guy wanted to be paid he wanted to be paid for the kids which i said we would not be take any part of and uh we just said we would be willing to take the kids you know to have them in a safe place and so i even took a uh guy that's a social social worker from child services to this orphanage he saw everything And what he said to me at the time was, you need to negotiate with him. So what I took, he knew the guy, he was friends with the guy. And from what I took from that was, he's wanting me to pay this guy. But Benito and I were dead set on, we are not giving in the description. We're not going to do this. And I just remember after I went home that night and I like to sit outside at night in the cool air after everyone's gone to bed and, I just remember sitting outside and being so frustrated to the point where I just remember I was almost shaking and I could feel like tears in my eyes because I just was so mad at the situation and I was so mad at God because I just kept thinking like, 
why would you let this happen to these kids? Like these kids have been abused physically, sexually, they've been mound, you know, not given food. They've been, when I was there the one day they gave a mango. That was the day. I just was so frustrated. And about a week later, I just felt, you know, we were going, I was going with some people and they had apparently tried to like stone somebody or they threatened to stone anybody who came to that orphanage again because they wanted the money before any kids would come. And so I was going there, a few friends going nearby and I said, you know what, let's just go there. We went there and the guy wasn't there, but the kids knew me at the time. So I went in and I was talking with them and I was with my uh, friends, my Haitian friends there. But I'd taken a very good friend of ours named Philip. And Philip is a very large Haitian. Like he's six foot something, 250. <laughs> he's a big guy. And he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and khakis. So he looks kind of professional. He just stood in the doorway because the only reason, reason he wanted to go is because he they had told him that uh, if I went there, that something bad could happen. So he was just kind of like watching out for me, good friend of mine. And uh, so we were talking with the kids and all of a sudden I see the guy pull up that uh, is in charge and he came walking in the door and he was like, had this mean look on his face. Like he was about to tell me off or something. He walks, he gets in the doorway and he looks left. And this guy's probably five, six, five, seven. He was a short guy. And he looks up at Philip and Philip's just sitting there. And I, I tell people this day, I said, he either thought Philip was like a government worker or a hitman. And he walked straight over to Benito and was like, I want to get you the kids. And within 24 hours, we had the kids. And I think that was like Jessica said, one of those times where I just had to really like, I'm not going to be able to control this. I tried to do all this work to get these kids out. But at the end of the day, it wasn't me who was going to do it. It was going to be God who took care of it. And I think that was some, probably the biggest thing I learned in that whole thing. And one of the, probably the biggest things I've learned in the six years that I've been in Haiti. Man, thank you guys for taking the time to share all that and the good work you guys are doing in Haiti. So as you know, you know, this podcast is called Purpose Over Paycheck. So I ask everyone in every episode, what does that mean to you guys? I think for us, it just means that one, number one, we're serving in God's purpose for whatever he's called us to. Um, and the money that comes with that doesn't matter because I'd rather be under the protection of God's will than under the protection of money that comes and goes. But um, also just what we do, are we working towards making the world a better place and pointing them towards God, the ultimate better place. And it's, it sounds, and a lot of people sometimes think it's really tough and there are really tough days, but we love our job. We are so happy to, to do what we do. And, you know, like I said earlier, we do have the opportunity, not that we are able to every day, but we have the opportunity almost every day to help change someone's life in the, or the direction of their life just by, you know, and it's as simple as I've worked with one guy and just been able to kind of teach him some business stuff. And he's been able to grow his business to some big thing where he's, you know, able to get married and help take care of other people in his family. And so it's little things like that. It's not always money or something like that. It's, it's really just what you can do. And I mean, I feel like, you know, we've been paid back in just everything of happiness and everything that we've gotten to do 
you know, way more than what we've put into it. And so we've, we've just really enjoyed doing that. And, you know, God's also placed a lot of good people in our life who have treated us well. They have a pretty incredible story, don't they? It's so cool to think about how many children in Haiti they've been able to help. I'm glad I got to share their story with you guys. If you are interested in learning more about them and the work they do, you can find them at inhishands.org. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Purpose Over Paycheck. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. See you guys soon.